Hello. In 1962, uh, the Christian missionary Don Richardson went to live with the Sawi people of Indonesia. And uh, once he'd learned their language uh, well enough, he shared with them for the first time they'd ever heard this, the Christian message and the story of Jesus. Now, to his delight, from the very outset on hearing the story, they were utterly captivated by the story and they really warmed to him. And, and uh, uh, Mr. Richardson was convinced that there was a o- real openness of heart to the Christian message. So it was some surprise uh, a little while later that he uh, realized there had been some misunderstanding about the story and particularly some misunderstanding about who the hero of the story actually was. Because strangely for the Sawi people, one character stood out more than any other and it wasn't Jesus, funnily enough. Now you see, uh, background to this, in Sawi culture they had an ideal uh, called, uh, in my best Indonesian, Tui Asanai Man. Okay, any Indonesians here, I'm very sorry. I butchered your language, I apologise. What that means is to fatten with friendship for unexpected slaughter. Okay, that would be an ideal of the Sawi people. Now, accordingly to this ideal, a man who could trick an enemy into thinking they were friends only to then kill him was seen as heroic. That was seen, they were actually called a legend maker within the culture, and that was something that would be of high honour and praise. Can anyone guess who they thought the hero of the story was? Judas. They went away literally thinking Judas Iscariot was the hero of the gospel story. Okay, now, I am assuming... Uh, knowing most of you good people, as I do, that we will not make the same error today. However, with Judas Iscariot, uh, there is a question for us, which is, particularly those of us who are Christians, of what on earth do we do with this character? Because today, we are going to be focusing on this very guy, on Judas Iscariot. Okay. Now, most of us, I would have thought probably all of us, will know the story, and that would be the case whether you're a Christian, whether you've been to church lots of times, whether you haven't, because Judas has very much, he's firmly entrenched in the imagination of our culture. In short, Judas is one of Jesus' disciples. He's one of Jesus' close friends. And uh, he sees Jesus through his whole earthly ministry. He's there at Jesus' right hand. Yet at the end, he turns around and he betrays Jesus to the point where he contributes to his death. We would, in, in our culture, we, we could even talk of someone being a Judas. It's into our language. And uh, it's been taken up on by, in popular culture, in all sorts of ways. So popular musicians from uh, Lady Gaga to Metallica would have written songs focusing on Judas. Uh, artists like Carvaggio, Rembrandt, many others. Others would have, uh, would have painted uh, Judas. Uh, and also there's a whole musical, Jesus Christ Superstar, that very much focuses on Judas and his relationship uh, with Jesus. He has captured, Judas has captured imaginations wherever the gospel has gone. But the question for us must be, what on earth do we do with him? We all know about him. He's interesting in, in that way. But what can we learn from him? We, we believe as a church we would, we would value God's word very highly, the Bible. We want to look at the, the, the stories in the Bible and the teachings of the Bible. And we want to say, God, what are you telling us here? What does this mean and, and what does it mean for us today? Well, as we look at Jesus, what does it mean for us today? And as we continue our series going through Luke's gospel, which we've been doing for a number of years now, had a little bit of a break uh, just up to Christmas. Uh, in last term. But that's the question I want to ask. And uh, really, what I'm going to be putting forward to us today is that Judas is not just a point of intrigue or a plot device to keep the story going and more interesting. Now, Judas stands as a stark warning to all Christians through all generations that we should be very careful in how we follow Jesus. We should be very careful in how we follow Jesus. 
So the first thing to do, I guess, uh, as we look at this and unpack this a bit, is to strip back the Judas of the Bible from the Judas of popular imagination. Okay, And uh, that's particularly important when we come to Luke's gospel, because uh, with this one, it's funny, you, you go to kind of look at Judas, and Luke gives us the sparsest account of Judas of any of the other gospels. Okay, it's very, I'm going to tell you what Luke says about Judas. We're going to start the beginning of Luke and to the end of Luke, and you think, oh, great, here we go. Believe me, in two minutes we're going to be done on this, this one, okay? He has three things that he says about Jesus. Jesus mentioned three times, okay? Firstly, in Luke 6, uh, verse 16, when Jesus lists the disciples, okay? Well, uh, Luke lists the disciples, and Judas, probably for obvious reasons, comes out last, and Judas Iscariot. Now, obviously, spoiler uh, warnings, spoiler alerts hadn't been invented in those days because he goes on to say, who became a traitor? Thanks for that, Luke. I was waiting for that bit, but, you know, that's, that's what Luke introduces Judas as. And the next time he's mentioned then is in Luke 22, where we are picking up the story chronologically as we're going through, uh, through Luke's gospel. And Luke 22, verse 1 to 6, this is what it says, reading from the NIV. Uh, now, the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd uh, was present. So if you remember, where we're up to at this point is Jesus is in Jerusalem, He's come to Jerusalem, and uh, he's uh, been increasingly challenging the Jewish religious leaders openly, confrontationally, to the point where they've had it. They want to get rid of him, and that is where Judas steps in. So just to be clear what their main problem was here, uh, they could have arrested Jesus at any time, but Jesus was tended, although he was openly walking about, it was in a busy city. Uh, Jesus, while he was splitting opinions more and more, still had a load of followers. People thought he was great. If they had arrested him in public, there would have been a riot, and actually the Roman authorities would have clamped down on it. Jesus would have probably been released and would have been even more heroic uh, to many than he had been before. So they needed a way to find out where he hid, where he was secretly hanging out. And at that point, that's when Judas stepped in and said, I can give you all of that and more. And they took that opportunity with open arms. Judas doesn't just start the process. According to Luke, there is one other mention, which is at the end of Luke 22, uh, which is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Judas actually leads the arrest party. It says this, verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Moving to verse 54, then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. So as I said a few minutes ago, it might have been more, slightly more than two. That, according to Luke, is that. There is no other direct mention of, of Judas at all in this gospel. For those of you who know the Bible a little bit, you'll know there is a little bit more than that that we know from the other Gospels. We know a little bit about his role among the disciples. He looked after the money. Actually, I say looked after quite loosely because he stole from the money as well as kind of being the treasurer. He, uh, we know also that when he went to the chief priests and the religious leaders, he was paid quite handsomely for his treachery, 30 silver coins, according to Matthew. And we also know that after Jesus is arrested, he has an attack of conscience, returns to the chief priest, throws the money back at them and says, look, I don't want anything to do with this, and then tragically goes away and commits suicide and ends uh, his own life. 
But Luke doesn't give us any of that stuff. Luke trims it right back to basically this. Judas was a disciple and he betrayed Jesus. That's all we get. He boils the whole thing down to simply that. And I think by stripping things back, Luke is making things very, very stark for us. What he's doing is this. He's saying, you know what, this is an example, this isn't a warning for some type of Christians. This isn't a warning just for those who feel that, that money's got a real grip on their life. Because the money angle is, is gone on in a couple of the other Gospels. No, he's saying this is for all disciples. This is a warning for any Christian who's been a Christian for any length of time. Whether you're a church attender, whether you're a church member, whether you're a church leader. This is a warning because Judas stands as a disciple who couldn't really have been any closer to Jesus if he tried, who turned on him more than anybody could ever turn on anyone. It's fascinating, I think, that Luke presents the last teaching that Judas heard, whether it was or not, we don't know, but in the chronology of the story, in this way, I remember preaching on it six or so months ago. If, we, if, you, just, if you had your Bible and you went back just to the passage before, Luke 21, 34, the last thing of teaching that, according to Luke, Judas heard, starts with these two words, Be careful. Be careful. It's in a particular context. It's talking about the end times. In the context of the end times and the trouble that's ahead of you, be careful. But I don't think that's a coincidence because you know what we can learn about Judas, just to put it as an introduction really. One thing Judas wasn't was he wasn't careful. And even having heard that, he went even further and not be careful. He, his heart turned in such a way and he went to the chief priests. You see, when we say this, when I say, look, this is a warning for us. God, I understand this warning's not for us to put us all in a perpetual state of fear about the future. As I'm going to say in a, in a short while, there is a kind of fear that maybe is appropriate here. But by fear in this sense, I, I don't mean it's an extreme form of worry. This is, that's not what this is for. Okay? It's not, be careful. Okay, I'm going to be really worried. Oh no, could I be Judas? Okay, that's not. It's not to give us that sort of fear. But it does give us the responsibility to be careful. We have to be able to learn to be able to be careful without being overwhelmed by that sense of worry. You see, for many of us here, our uh, right understanding, I think, of the Bible's teaching on the security we have in our salvation certainly stops us from having that extreme sense of worry that many uh, Christians would be plagued with. This sort of idea that well, anything could happen at any moment, it's all in my hands. You know, no, no, many of us would say, no, no, I'm secure in, in God's hands. It would keep us from that. However, if we're not careful, that same teaching and an emphasis on that same teaching can stop us doing the right thing that we're meant to have together with that. It can stop us being careful. We've got to watch that. Listen, let's be, let's be uh, as clear on it as we can. The Bible clearly teaches if you've become a Christian, if the Holy Spirit has made you into a new creation, if you've been born again, if you've come to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not you might be saved. It's not you'll be saved, brackets, if you kind of really keep going and doing this and this. No, you will be saved. Jesus put it like this. He said that once you're in his hand, once you're his child, once you're a sheep of the good shepherd, no one can snatch you from his hand. Hear that today. Nobody can snatch you from his hand. Paul makes it clear. Nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. 
He underlines his confidence in Philippians 1 when he, he says he's confident that when, when God's done a good work in you, he will carry it through to completion. Promises like that are all the way through the New Testament. They're not just in verses, they're in the whole structure of salvation. Once you're adopted, you don't get unadopted. You can't do a Macaulay Culkin and divorce your parents, okay? You can't do that. You can't be unborn again. No, that's very, very clear in Scripture. And we need to dig those truths deep into our spirits. But if you take those truths and then you think, well, that's it then. Once I've said a prayer, once I've been to church for a bit, once I've learned the lingo and fitted in, well, then that's it. I can kick back, put my feet up and wait for an express elevator to heaven. Well, I'd say if that's the case, if that's where you're at, you need to widen your bank of memory verses. You need to put some different verses on your fridge along with them. How about this one? Matthew seven twenty one to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You know who would have been there hearing that message? Judas would have been there. Right there, front row of that. And Jesus says that. I wonder if at that point, we just don't know. But wonder at that point, Jesus already knew exactly where it was going. This was his friend, his close friend. There was no sense of a setup here. He loved this guy. But he could maybe see his heart where he was going. And he was saying, no, please, Judas. Maybe he's lingered on him for a moment. Be careful. And Judas didn't hear a word of it. He didn't listen. Now, whether that is the case or not, the Holy Spirit felt it was appropriate to prompt Matthew to record that passage for all of Jesus' followers throughout all generations. And again, it's in line with the consistent teaching of the New Testament. Yes, children of God never get unadopted. That's true. But at the same time, there is a responsibility for us to live our lives consistent with being God's children, or we could find out tragically, as Judas did, that we were never children in the first place. As followers of Jesus, we should have a confident assurance of our salvation, but there is a responsibility on us to live out that salvation, as Paul puts it, with fear and trembling. And again, just to clarify words here, by fear in that verse, Paul does not mean extreme worry, or my life's in the balance, in my, in my hands. No, it doesn't mean that. It means what Jesus said in Luke twenty-one thirty-four. It means, as we do it, we've got to be careful. So, can we add anything to that general warning? Or do we just wrap up there and go, guys, be careful, let's worship. Okay? I think there's some other things we can get from Judas that can help us and give us some specific uh, flesh on those bones, uh, really. And I think the two things I can see in this passage is, uh, is in this passage, in the whole story of Luke, and seeing where Judas would have come, what, what things he ignored, what things we can learn from the things he didn't do well, would be there are certain triggers we can see that would have contributed to Judas's change of heart. He had a pretty significant change of heart in Luke's gospel, and there are a number of triggers we can see. I think I want to focus on one of those triggers, because if we're alert to those things, that can help us. And then practically, to finish, I want to, there's one very practical thing that Judas didn't do and never did, that I think we can do as well as we aim to be careful and wise in how we uh, follow our Lord. 
And uh, so first of all, triggers uh, for, for Judas. Now, the main one I can see is, is, is that Judas, uh, with the tr- trigger that could have led Judas, I say could have, as you'll see, I think it's quite likely to have been there uh, somewhere, uh, to get from disciple of Jesus, yes, you're the best, to actually, could you kill him for me? Okay, how did he get there? Well, there are a number of things that happened along the way. As we go through Luke's gospel, you think, yeah, that probably contributed to it and that. And one of those major things is this. Jesus, as Luke goes on, becomes more and more offensive. I don't mean that in an objective way of like, he's an offensive kind of person. Just he would have openly offended people more and more, including maybe specifically his disciples. I want to look at, look at that. We've got to understand that that is how Jesus was to them, and also Jesus does this to us too. It's uh, fascinating how Luke lays out Jesus' ministry in his gospel. And uh, as we've kind of taken a break from Luke's gospel, Jonathan back last week talking on the Passover, we've been out this for a term. It's kind of good to kind of get our bearings again, particularly with this topic. But uh, you might remember this if you've been here before. You, you might just be kind of a helpful recap. But just reflect on how Luke has structured Jesus' ministry. He does it basically in three stages. He lays out Jesus' ministry in three different steps. Like First of all, he presents Jesus in Galilee, all around the area of Galilee. And this is where the disciples meet him. So this is the, as, if you're thinking, where did Judas, what was his journey with Jesus? It starts in Galilee. And uh, Luke presents Jesus' ministry in Galilee in a very, very appealing way. And it would have been a very appealing place to be for Jesus' disciples. It was something of a honeymoon period, which you get up to about Luke 9 uh, in the the story and uh, basically you've got these disciples like Judas who came to this guy there would have been trepidation there would have been nervousness I'm giving loads away for you but there's that excitement as well and you find in those early chapters Jesus meets the expectation and then some I mean what do you see in that part of the story in Luke you see Jesus helping everyone he can find doing good in miraculous ways to people that everyone said wow this is amazing it would have been fun being with Jesus at that point some, some of the religious leaders came to Jesus and his disciples early on and said, why are you lot always eating and drinking? Basically, it's like, why is it so fun to be your disciple, Jesus? Yeah, that's a good place to be for these guys in Galilee. I mean, it's sort of a kind of, uh, a sort of anti-establishment feel that I think some of them would have had, a kind of swagger. Hey, look, we're, we're on the right team. Like, I mean, one time they're walking through a field and on the Sabbath and they're hungry, so they just kind of pick a bit of corn, like I suppose if you were going... Th- walking down the canal and picked a blackberry or something. But suddenly the religious leaders are in their faces going, it's the Sabbath, you can't do that, it's work. And it's, it's that petty sort of religious thing. What does Jesus do? Does Jesus go, oh, really sorry, yeah, guys, oh, don't do that again. No, no, he goes, oi, stop it. That's not what it meant at all. You've got it wrong. And you can imagine the disciples being, yeah, we're with him. You tell him, Jesus. It's fun, it's exciting. It's like, this is great. There's obviously the wise teaching that Jesus, Jesus brought. It was in, that, in that part, it's very general, and it's kind of stuff that even people who aren't Christians go, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, that is wise stuff. And that was what it was like in Galilee with Jesus. It was the honeymoon period. Then Luke 9.51 says, Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, and as his location changes in the gospel, suddenly the tone changes. Jesus is off to Jerusalem. And suddenly, his teaching becomes more confrontational. Through that passage, that section, it's more confrontational. There's more stuff about judgment. Even God's wrath comes in there. So, like, oh, we don't hear this. This is, this is challenging to us. He begins to challenge things that the disciples hold very, very dear, much more openly than he does at Galilee. 
he begins to meet and invite more aggressive conflict from religious leaders. It's not about picking stalks anymore. No, it's about some much more fundamental matters. And Jesus starts talking about his death. And it becomes really clear as they go to Jerusalem that, they, that Jesus will not fit in the boxes they've got for him. These disciples think, we think Jesus is the saviour, we might even call him Messiah, but we think that's this. Suddenly Jesus goes, oh, by the way, I'm going to be executed when we get to Jerusalem. Suddenly, box disappears. Who is this guy? He's not playing our game. He's not playing according to our rules. And then finally, uh, and this is the passage we've just come, in to, we've just come to the end of uh, in this gospel. He arrives in Jerusalem, and the contrast is turned up even higher. Jesus forces the issue. He openly takes on the entire Jewish religious establishment, enters the heart of Judaism, the temple, clears the temple, sets up shop there, and starts pronouncing imminent and terrible judgment on God's own people in the heart of their religion. It's not on the Philistines, not on those out there, not even on the Romans, no, on the people of God, on Israel. I think we often approach God, uh, approach Judas, sorry, as if uh, this is totally inexplicable, what could happen. How could anyone turn on Jesus like this? They were with him the whole time. And sometimes I think that can betray a slightly romantic view of who Jesus is. Jesus is not the embodiment of niceness. He is not anything you want him to be. He's not the spiritual embodiment of the man of your dreams or your perfect pal or your best self-help counsellor. Now, Jesus has an agenda. And to people like us who have agendas too, that is going to end up being offensive to us in one way or another if we allow him to speak as he wants to speak. I think that, remember for this for Judas, and this must have been a, a very important factor here. Judas was a devout a Jew. He was a devout religious Jew. And we, I think for many of us, I've got to speak for all of us, uh, but for many of us who wouldn't be Jewish by ethnicity, uh, when we hear stories of Jesus saying, yeah, God's taking the kingdom from just the Jews and giving it to everyone, and we all cheer and go, and that's why we're here. Thank you, Lord. Great, great passages. Well, imagine you hearing that as someone who's been brought up with the message, and we're part of the people of God, ethnically, uh, ethnic origin means God, we're special. We've got that. That's drilled into you from the birth and then Jesus says, no, it's all gone. That's deeply offensive. And Judas would have been affected by that like anyone else. All the disciples had to come to terms with that. Listen, wherever we are in our Christian walk, we have got to understand the offense of Jesus. You might have come across it already. You might have already started to deal with this. You might still be in honeymoon period. Ah, Jesus is great. Forgiveness, love, grace. Brilliant, all these good things. Tell you what this, you've got to clock this. There is some point that if you allow Jesus, the real Jesus, to speak, he will offend you. And you've got to clock that one and think, what am I going to do at that moment? What, how am I going to prepare for that moment? Because it will come. I think we could see this just simply from the, the message, general message of Christianity makes this offense and conflict inevitable. The message of Christianity is that We are created beings and that we have fallen from the standards of our creator. And that doesn't just mean there are some things we now do that we shouldn't. It means our very thinking on the matter of right and wrong and how we should live our lives has become so skewed that we don't understand what right and wrong even are. We we think things are good when they're bad and we think things are bad that they're good. We've fallen from the standards of our creator. 
And obviously, the message of Christianity, which is excellent news, is our Creator doesn't leave us. He comes back to us to rescue us and win us back to Him. And part of that is reasserting His standards and laying out, no, no, you've got that wrong, actually. This is what I had in mind. If you think that through, it's inevitable then that offense will come. It's inevitable conflict will come. Because our creator standards will not always fit nicely into our cultural prejudices and our personal affections, which are by nature fallen. Coming to know Jesus, therefore, will mean you are on a collision course with offense. If you're, you're here today and you're not a Christian, I recognize this talk would be a little more in-house than often we would do, and this is mainly directed at Christians. But for you, you might look into Christianity with some interest, but also think, but there's a number of things you Christians believe that are just utterly wrong. They're just offensive. They're just completely against my value system. And I know this is a really hard thing to think, but if you could step out of that for a second, I want you to understand that that's not an argument against Christianity. That's not evidence against Christianity. In fact, that could well be evidence for Christianity. Because if Christianity is true... That has to happen. God will challenge our value systems. Often, some of the things we cherish most dear, because we're fallen, and we have fallen from his standards. And his standards are correct, and ours are not. So, we need to watch that trigger. We need to ask ourselves the question, how do we handle the offensiveness of Jesus? I hope you get my tone in all this. I'm not in any way downplaying our saviour. We love him. Those of us who have come to Christians, actually, there's that grating moment where you say, okay, there's some things about God that I hate, actually. He's, he's, he's going to tell me what to do. It's this and that. I don't agree with that, this and that. But there's something the work of the Spirit on us says, no. But we can see, actually, our eyes are open. We see the goodness of God. And we run to him. And we realize, actually, Jesus is beautiful. He's wonderful. He's right. And each time we come to that offense, when we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and say, no, we're going to go with you, we come out the other side the same, saying, he's right. He was right. Thank you, Jesus. But we've got to be ready for offense. There's other triggers we could identify. I just mention a couple that could have been in Judas' mind along the way. There's, as, as Jesus went along in his ministry, he, he upped the ante on the cost it took to be a disciple. In the beginning, they gave away everything they said. Well, they didn't really know what that meant because then Jesus starts saying things like this. If you want to be my disciple, you take up your cross daily and you follow me. It's not one-off when you became a Christian. I gave up a few things, now sorted. Sacrifice done. No, we take up our cross daily and follow him. It's not, being a Christian is not sacrificing a few things, Jesus makes clear as he goes along. No, it's giving up everything. It's what he says goes now. Judas had to deal with that. He dealt with it very badly. There are other little things. Exclusion, Judas would have dealt with. He was in the disciples. He was in the twelve. But he didn't get taken on the mountain. Peter, James, and John, come with me. Hey, I want to come, Jesus. No, no, Judas, this isn't for you. We don't know if that conversation happened, but he would have seen it. How do you deal with exclusion and things like that? How do you deal with the fact that, hey, I was doing that, and then I didn't get asked to do it again? I thought I was doing great, actually, in that area at church, and then no, nothing from people. I, I thought God had that for me, but no, now someone else is doing it, and now I'm doing this, and now I'm kind of, what am I doing? Again, it's a trigger. We've got to be aware of that. In Judas, was that another thing that led him? He thought, I wasn't ready for this. I didn't sign up for this. Actually, my heart's going colder and colder. Maybe it's the money thing. It's clear from the other Gospels, not in Luke. But money had a hold on Judas. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. 
Again, it's a trigger. Be aware. We need to be aware of these triggers that in our Christian lives will come up. And some of us are dealing with these already. And we've got to ask ourselves and be prepared. What are we going to do about these things? If we, in a complacent and blasé way, walk our way through the Christian life just thinking, everything's going to be fine. Everything's great. God loves me. What could possibly go wrong? And we just switch off. We are going to be in big trouble down the line. I want to hear that, not with worry, but with the weight that we're meant to hear it with. Because that's the only thing we can get from Judas. So how do we deal with it? Do we just give in to fear? No, Paul makes it clear. We've got to keep saying this. Paul makes it clear in Romans 8. You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You received a spirit of sonship. Now what do we do? Well, first of all, we say, okay, step back. You know what? I remember what Jesus has done in my life. I've seen the good things he's done. I've seen how he's changed me. I've got the hallmarks of a son. The Holy Spirit testifies in my spirit. And if I'm a son, God's on my side and he'll help me. I'm not on my own here. This doesn't all depend on me. He's with me in this. We, we bank on that. We put that and we say, that's that. And at the same time, we're very careful. And one last thing, a practical way we can apply that care I think we can get from this story of Judas and Judas's example as well. To do one thing, as we spot these triggers, and we think, well, how are we going to prepare for this? One piece of wisdom I think we find in this story, and it's Judas struggled in a certain way as he went through all this stuff. There were struggles. There were clearly struggles. You don't go from disciple to Jesus killer like within that space with no struggles. That's not a snap of the finger thing. But he struggled in a certain way. He struggled completely in silence for the whole time. Completely in silence. The wisdom I want to end on today, which I think we see from the story of Jesus, is we spot our triggers and we're careful with them and we don't struggle in silence on these things. It's interesting. We're going to do a couple of other messages which are kind of like pen portraits of characters that appear in Luke 22. And Andy, I think you've got Peter, haven't you, next week or something like that. Have you prayed that yet, by the way? You ready? Okay, well, that's good. This will, this will help you because I, I don't want to clear steal your thunder, but I am now going to move on to Peter a tiny bit. And we're going to do Pontius Pilate in a few weeks as well. But the, the funny thing is Luke does with Judas in this chapter. He compares and contrasts Peter and Judas in some ways. And he does this, there's a bit here. And uh, we see this in a couple of ways, some things we, I'm not going to go into too much today. The, the role of the devil uh, is, is brought out in both characters. So it says uh, that Satan entered Judas. And that was a kind of motivation. That was a, maybe a culmination of all that had happened. It's a, you want to ask questions about that, please ask, send questions in Sermon Plus. We're not going to go there today, but just to say this. Also, Satan's working on Judas. Well, Satan's also working on Peter. It says, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, which is Peter's other's name, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Luke's putting them both up and saying, look, I want to contrast and compare these two characters. The devil's working on them both. And as you probably know, both of them fall, actually. Peter, not quite as finely as Judas, but he denies he even knows Jesus. So there's a comparison made between these two. But it goes without saying, there is a significant contrast as well. Peter is there at the end. Judas is not there at the end. And one of the things then, we say, well, what's the difference between these characters? And I'm sure Andy will bring many more profound things out next week. But one thing, maybe it just appeals to me on this one, was one of the clearest contrasts in Luke's Gospel is uh, that Peter is, opens his mouth a lot more than Judas. 
if you've noticed that. It's one of the funny characters between these two. Let's think about Peter for a second. Peter is the classic example of speak before you think, isn't he? You know, I mean, you can flick through and see it yourself, but he initially, he tells Jesus to go away. <laughs> Jesus comes to the first words of Peter, almost the first words of Jesus, come and follow me, go away, leave me alone. Like, it's a bad start, really, Peter. He reveals his ignorance when he doesn't get it, Peter. He's doing that reasonably regularly. He moans to Jesus. He makes overblown assertions of his own faithfulness. This is Peter talking about here. He gets quite close to correcting Jesus on occasions, publicly. And sometimes he just says the most bizarre things you can think of. Up on a mountain, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And Peter's like, I know too. Let's build shelters for them. Brilliant idea. All, the gospel writers, all, pretty much all of them, then at that point distance themselves from Peter and say, he didn't really know what he was saying. You can really read it. It's like saying, we're not with that guy. Okay, he's... Talking out of line. And uh, Peter, for all those reasons, this kind of outspoken, he speaks what's in his mind sort of way, he's easy to mock. And I bet you Judas would have been there with the others, rolling his eyes, a yet another Peter foot in the mouth moment. Okay? But here's the deal Peter's there at the end, and Judas isn't there at the end. And you know what we hear from Judas in the Gospel of Luke? Not one word. He never speaks. There's a pride associated, rightly so, with a big mouth. People who like the sound of their own voice, who value their opinions too highly, who always want to be the centre of attention. But there's an at least equal pride that can be expressed through silence as well. There's a pride that says, I can do this on my own. I don't need any help. I can work through all my problems myself. Peter's outspoken approach led him to looking very silly sometimes, even to denying he knew Jesus. But Judas's, his approach of silence and put on a front and smile and everything's fine, isn't Jesus great? When inside something completely different was going on, where did that lead him? Only to hang himself on a tree, having been the person who was most responsible for the death of our Lord. That's big. As we look to be careful to avoid Judas's terrible example, I think we need to learn the wisdom of this. We need to be people who speak up honestly about our struggles. John mentions one thing that Judas says, actually, in John's Gospel. And even on that occasion, he makes it clear he wasn't being honest. He was putting up a front. He was showing something that he wasn't. Luke actually gives us a specific window into Judas's stubborn refusal to speak what was going on inside, actually. Last last verses we'll look at Luke 22 21 to 23 again in, in the chapter we're looking at it's the Judas has uh, handed Jesus he's gone to the chief priests but he hasn't handed Jesus over yet it's the last supper Jesus says this but the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table the son of man will go as it has been decreed but woe to that man who betrays him they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this I think we see two things from this first thing we've got to see here is that Jesus is giving Judas one last chance here. I think when you know the whole story and you see all the kind of other comments on it, it's easy to see this had to happen. It was decreed. It had to be the case. And to a, a sense, from one angle, that is the correct. But on the ground, at that place in time in history, what is Jesus doing? Woe to the one who betrays me. What he's doing is, whether he's looking at him or not, he's saying, Please, Judas, please, now's your chance. You have one more moment. Tell us what's going on inside. How can we help you here? This is friend. 
And we see this, this has been Judas's policy all along from the thing at the end. It says in verse 23, that they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. I think many of our opinions of Judas would lead to a very different verse 23. I think for many of the way that Judas have trade, verse 23 would run something like this. And they all turned in unison to point and stare at this rather shifty character in the corner who was obviously trouble. That doesn't happen. No one has any idea. Who could it be? Well, couldn't be you. Couldn't be you. Couldn't be you, Judas. You're, you're the money guy. You're, you're reliable. You, you follow Jesus wherever you'll go. What does it show us? He never told a soul. He never confided in any of them what was going on in his heart. He never took anyone's side and go, guys, I'm really struggling here. He, he says, Israel's going down. I love Israel. No, he says nothing. Even he can have the audacity to look up and go, who could it be? I don't know. Who could it be? It's definitely not me. No, Judas stays silent right to the end. I want to simply end this message with a challenge. And it might seem like a very kind of light challenge. Like, that's not really a command of the Bible. I guess in a sense it's not. There were many disciples who were as silent as Judas in Luke's gospel and they pulled through. But I think there's wisdom here. And the challenge is this. Is as you face the struggles of following the offensive Jesus, which you will, and you face the struggles of counting the cost of making him your Lord, Will you do it silently like Judas, or will you do it openly like Peter? Very practically, just three things practically. First thing, I'd recommend people being generally more open. I'm not saying that because I'm thinking, I know at the West site, they're a right closed bunch. I'm saying that because I happen to be, and we all happen to be, in 21st century England, okay? Now, obviously, people go, well, I can't share everything with everyone, can I? And that's true. However, I think in our culture, struggling in silence has become such a badge of honour that we could do with pushing the other way on this one. If that means making yourself just generally more open and making it some slightly awkward moments when someone goes, how are you? And you go, actually, that might have been meant as just a mere greeting, but I'm not doing very well at the moment, thank you. There is an awkwardness that happens when you start doing that. But I'd encourage us to do it. We've got to be honest with each other. And if we can't be honest with each other, who can we be honest with? So generally more open. Secondly, though, with that said, it is helpful to have individuals who you can get alongside and talk more openly with. And sometimes some of us would have people like that who are close to us already, uh, spouses uh, or close friends. Uh, and I'd encourage you, find those people. And if you already have people like that, tell them what's going on. If you can't tell your spouse the struggles you're going through, who can you tell? If you can't tell your best friend the struggles you're going through, who can you tell? Some Christians, they find uh, it helpful to have um, uh, that slightly more formal and accountability partner. Some of you will have heard of that. If you haven't, it sounds very weird. Don't worry, Christians are weird. That's okay. We're we're good with that. Uh, Discipleship partner, whatever. That can be helpful for some people. And if you're in a life group, I'd encourage you to be in a life group. Um, talk to your life group leader. Say, look, can I meet up once a month while we're in life group or once every three weeks or something and just tell you what's going on in my, my life? So firstly, generally be more open. Secondly, find someone or a particular small group you can share everything with and also ask questions. Please ask questions. Just really practical little thing. And we, we started doing it last term, but uh, we started the Sermon Plus thing last term. 
mainly for our sermons, obviously this is suggesting the title, where we want you to ask questions. Uh, if, uh, if something comes up from the message that you don't quite understand, that we weren't clear enough, or we don't necessarily agree, we don't want this to be a place, just, these aren't messages aren't one-way traffic. <laughs> we used to have in life groups the word sections, and remember those. And everyone would uh, remember, it would be quite frustrating sometimes, because everyone was like, different idea here, and it's like, ah, oh, get in. But what that was really good at, actually, was meant we could, it wasn't one-way traffic, we could, we could work with those things. Listen, it's not okay. If someone says, we go home today, it's not a bad thing for you to say. If someone, your, your partner or friend goes, oh, how did you find this? One goes, actually, I struggled with that today. Didn't agree with all of that. Didn't know the tone of that. I didn't, or I didn't understand. That, that didn't make sense. Johnny was talking far too quickly in that section for every sermon he does. Okay, um, that's okay. And if you've got questions to send them through, that'd be great. We, we're not going to do that every week as a matter of rote sermon plus. We'll do it when we get questions come in. And the reason for that is we just didn't get a whole load of questions last term. And I, I recognise that could well be because that our preaching is so clear and uh, so non-controversial that everyone leaves the room just thinking that no one could disagree with what was said today. That's possible. Uh, <laughs> thank you. And on that, we'll finish. <laughs> I, I think probably more likely it's this, that we struggle asking questions. I I might be wrong, but I think that's the, the case. Please, can you make Church Central a place where questions are asked in the right way? That's good, but questions are asked. This is a place we don't shut down on those things. Okay, we want questions. That's good. So let's end this difficult topic with a summary. Disciples of Jesus can fall. They can blow it, in the case of Judas, very, very badly. And what's our response? Well, our response is that we need to be careful how we follow Jesus. Let's identify triggers that could derail us and let's refuse to struggle with those triggers in silence. And most importantly of all, running all the way through this, let's throw ourselves on God's mercy and his grace and work with him as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling.